Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging field of data science. We bring the best minds in data, software engineering, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now here are your hosts, Frank Lavinia and Andy Leonard. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we focus on the emerging fields of data science, machine learning and artificial intelligence. If you like to think of data as the new oil, then you can think of this show as Car Talk, because we focus on where the rubber meets the virtual road. And with me on this epic road trip down the information superhighway, as always, is everybody's favorite data philosopher turned chief data engineer, Andy Leonard. <laughs> hey, Frank, how are you doing? Doing well. I'm doing well. We're uh, we're recording this uh, in that uh, gray zone between Christmas and New Year's. Yep. Which actually, for me, has not been a quiet time. I have been heads down in Hadoop. Awesome. Yeah, but we'll talk about that later. I think today we have something special to say. All right. So uh, we actually have a kind of a big announcement or, or a milestone that I will uh, treat the moment with the uh, all due reverence and. Uh, play some music okay this is show number 100 what yeah so i'm sure there's a lot of people there scratching their heads because i think we're probably gonna label this show 20 something (laughs) or something like that so they're like what how could this be show 100? Is this some kind of new math thing? Well, it's because, um, Frank, you've been doing so many killer data points. And, you know, early in the summer, you were doing a lot of data science dailies. Uh, we, yep. we tried a bunch of things out, and we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep adding things, and things will fade in and fade out as we go through this, just just because. Experimentation. Absolutely. Well, that's what data science is really all about, is it not? That's what puts the science in data science. <laughs> this is also, <laughs> I think this is the first show where I'm using my new Yeti mic. Yes. Um, so one of the things that came back was um, they let people would tell me they love the show, but the the feedback was you got to do something about Andy's mic. Well, here we go. <laughs> we do listen to feedback, kids. <laughs> we absolutely we do. I like this mic. I, I still really don't know how to use it. I've been playing around with the settings. There's like four or five knobs on it. It's a it's an engineer's dream in that sense. You know, lots. Of- uh, it really is. I, I've had the Yeti for uh, a couple of years, and um, it's just um, I love it. Um, I have a pop filter on it too, which I think you do as well. I don't, but I've got it placed far enough away from me where it's not really a problem. Cool. So for those who have no idea what a pop filter is, if you've ever seen um, video of musicians recording uh, an album, it's that little piece of nylon between um, their mouth and the microphone. Yeah, I could do a demo, but it would hurt your ears if you're wearing uh, earbuds. I could actually get close to the mic and say pop, and you would you'd probably feel it and hear it. So I won't do that yes. to you. Take my word for it. It's painful. Uh, blow out the speakers, uh, your bass speakers in your car too. Um, but that's why it's called a pop filter because it basically stands between you, your mouth, uh, and the microphone, and blocks the air. That's it. That is it. We're learning all kinds of new things today. 
We are. And, you know, Frank, I know you've been working some with Hadoop. I know you've got a course that's uh, coming out. You've been playing some with Azure.gov. Uh, you've delivered some training on that recently. You've just got your hands into all sorts of cool stuff. I feel like I, I, I have learned more in the past uh, four or five weeks than I have in the last two, three years. Wow. Um, that's saying something. Uh, yeah. So um, as part of my, uh, my job at Wintelect, uh, we had a, we had a couple of uh, training gigs set up for December on basically providing training for how to use the Azure gov service, which is the government certified um, version of Azure. And um, it's, it's a very cool product, a very cool idea. However, um, with the, Great government certifications comes great limitations. <laughs> well, it's just like the regular Azure service, isn't it? Uh, I, I, in theory. <laughs> you say that like there are some differences, Frank. What are the differences? The, the, basically, uh, anything that goes on Azure Gov, the, the purpose of uh, Azure Gov is that uh, government agencies um, at the state, federal, and local levels can um, put their workloads into this cloud. Yeah. However... In order to comply with various regulations, um, this is everything on this cloud is certified. It's a completely separate data center. Mm. Um, it's completely everything separate about it. Um, and but the nice thing is that it you know it, it meets things like FedRAMP and you know it even it's even HIPAA compliant. Uh, there's all sorts of good stuff that if you're working on a regulated uh, industry or government entity, uh, this is the type of cloud you can use. Interesting. And uh, now to that end is that they can't be as experimental as they are on Azure government as, as regular Azure. So there's a lot of things that are kind of locked down or just not available yet. Mm. So what's locked um, down? Well, by the time you hear this, prob this probably won't be the case, but uh, Azure functions um, is available in Azure gov, but the UI has not yet been certified. Uh -huh. Okay. Now that's supposed to be cleared up in December. Um, so I'll, you know, depending on when I publish this, that may or may not be the case. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, depending on, on what their definition of in December was, I know that, um, you know, mid December was not meeting the mark because we had to go through and rework the labs we have for Azure, regular Azure, um, and um, basically rework them to do the command line interface. Interesting. And that, that's, that's um, something that really speaks to um, just because the, the the PowerPoint slide or the website says that X is available in Azure Gov. Mm -hmm. Available is one of those words that's not has more than a binary meaning. <laughs> so it could be that the product or service or feature is there, but in order to use it, you'd have to use a command line interface. Right. Okay. And for those of you who don't know, Azure has this, uh, you could use PowerShell, mm -hmm. obviously, uh, but we like to do things that are more cross-platform because believe it or not, we, there's, there's things called Macs that pop up every now and then. That's crazy talk. It's wild. <laughs> um, so Azure CLI is, uh, is, is something you install and you can just issue commands to it and it works in Bash and it works in, um, in Windows Command. Nice. And um, it's... Uh, it's a pretty neat thing. I want you to get used to it. Um, the documentation is not as robust as kind of, um, you know, the, using the, the, the graphical interface right. in the portal. Right. Um, but um, 
you know, if you dig around, you could find out what you need to do. Okay. That's a lot of trial and error. Well, I'm curious, is this just for the U.S. government or can other nations or governments use Azure.gov? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. So there's this notion of, um, and I know the inside story of a lot of this because of where I worked at when I was at Microsoft. Right. Um, so there's there's Azure China, hmm. uh, and there's Azure Germany, and I think there's one other one. But they're calling them sovereign clouds. That's an interesting uh, term. It is. So Azure Gov is a quote-unquote, sovereign cloud. And basically what it means is that even though it's running Azure, the ownership and the management of it is completely separate from regular Azure. Hmm. Now, for the federal U.S. federal one, there's a pretty clear mission of what that is. Right. Um, now, the, the politics of the PRC, People's Republic of China, being what they are, uh, <laughs> the made it sure that the the ownership the 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 normal azure data centers are owned and operated by microsoft right right pretty straightforward right right no surprise there sure um as is azure gov azure gov is um owned and operated by microsoft now something very interesting happened uh, i think two three years ago where there was some kind of uh drug related case and the Data for this, one of the suspects is stored in uh, the Azure um, data center in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, I remember this case. Owned. Yeah. Right. Now, this is why you're starting to see this pop up. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll explain kind of why that is. I'm, and I'm, I'm pausing because I'm trying to remember what, I know, what I'm supposed to know publicly and what I'm not supposed to know publicly. <laughs> well, if I remember, uh, I, see, I didn't know things that you know about this. So I can summarize that the data was stored outside of the United States territory. There was no jurisdiction. And there was a request from some agency to retrieve that data. And it was a U.S. agency to retrieve yeah, that Justice. data. And Microsoft, they expected Microsoft to comply with that order. However, the data center was on someone else's sovereign territory. And there was a bit of a dust-up over that, if I recall. And the dust-up is still going on. Wow. Um, okay. It, um, it it probably won't get resolved till it hits the Supreme Court. Honestly, that is so. That's so, really interesting, though. I mean, when you think about that, just and I'm not I promise I'm not judging uh, either way. It's it's just there's a lot of of dynamics in there, right? Because Microsoft is a U.S. company, but the data resides in another country. <laughs> so. Right. So, so this is kind of the crux of the argument. And um, if uh, I, I, Brad Smith is the chief legal counsel mm-hmm. at um, Microsoft. I'd love to get him on the show and him talk about it. Yeah. Um, I actually have a selfie of me and him. So. Oh, wow. Um, a selfie. Okay. So, so like he does know of me, whether or not he remembers me is another thing. <laughs> um, but the, the short of it is, is that basically data stored in Ireland, right? Another country, another sovereign territory. Right. Department of Justice is like, give us that data. Right. Microsoft's like, well, uh, no. Um, there are places and mechanisms in place to get that. You know, right? You know, the you can call the Irish authorities and they would issue a warrant, and Microsoft would be compelled to give it to them. Hmm. The Department of Justice, and this started in the previous administration. Um, 
said, no, 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 no. You're an American company. Right. You fall, you fall under our jurisdiction. And Microsoft's response is kind of like, I don't think it works that way. Well, you can kind of see both sides of it. And I'm not trying, I promise, I'm not right. taking sides and I'm not favoring, you know, I, you know me, Frank, I'm big on privacy. Um, yep. So I, I like the fact that Microsoft said no, but I also understand, I, I, I do understand the government's position on that. I get it. Um, so it's, it'll be interesting to see how this works out. Yeah, I won't be as kind. I, I think the Department of Justice is just overreaching. And uh, in, in, I, I mean, I mean, it's true. I mean, so one of the examples, one of the, re, the, the stated reasons that the DOJ gave was, no, no, we, we need to be able to respond quickly. Hmm. You can kind of scratch your chin and say, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Now, the, the Bataclan attack happened. And the French authorities went through the existing channels to subpoena information and get a warrant. Right. They had data which was stored, I think, in the U.S. Even interesting. Uh, they were able to get the data in forty-five minutes. Wow, that's pretty quick. Um, yeah. Now you you contrast this with the DOJ's kind of uh, heavy-handed approach. Yeah. Which is it's going on two years. Interesting. At least I'm, I'm sure someone will know the actual truth and kind of you know beat us up in the comments. But possible. I mean. But still, been longer than forty-five minutes. Yeah, forty-five minutes is a lot less time than two years. Right, and and the idea that Microsoft is is putting forth as, and this is cool because I don't work for them anymore, so I don't have to toe the party line. <laughs> I actually do. In this case, though, I do agree with their party line. Is the idea that there's already laws in place for this? Right. There's already treaties in place for this agree. that can handle yeah. subpoenas. I mean, that's. And their 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 take is that you know, this you know, and you always have that slippery slope argument. Oh, yeah. so there's this one clip, and I want to find it. It's I assume it's on C-SPAN. The C-SPAN is not known for its comedy or drama, right? But basically, uh, Representative Daryl Issa uh, was uh, was grilling basically the DRJ on this, mm. um, and he's like, you know, basically it's summed down to. Well, you know, if he said, well, how would you feel if Irish authorities wanted to arrest you? And they just, you know, they issued a, you know, they issued a warrant in Ireland and then they just marched right in here and pulled you out of the room. Yeah. And the, the way it played out was very funny. Okay. Because basically he, 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 Daryl Issa was kind of the, 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 the lawyer for the DOJ was saying something like, well, I would expect them to get a warrant and there would be an extradition process. He goes, no, no, no. What you're asking for is for them to actually bust down the door and yank you out of here without any warning. Interesting. He's like, you don't see that as a problem of, of sovereignty? <laughs> and That's a good argument. I mean, I mean I, to me, I mean, that's the same thing because the line between virtual and physical is, is a lot blurrier than it used to be. Well, and that's... That's driving a lot of stuff. And I, I get it that the laws haven't quite caught up with that. And I know they're trying. I give, you know, I, I assume best intentions. And, and they're right. trying to apply due process to the digital age. And there was a little bit of a dust up uh, in the news. And you know me in the news, Frank. I really don't watch it because of my blood pressure. But <laughs> um, I did see the story um, recently where 
uh, in the Mueller investigation of uh, potential collusion with the Russian government, there were some emails that the transition team had in place while they were transitioning into their office about a year ago. They had these emails flying back and forth. And there was, a, again, a process where most people normally respect that. And they go through a subpoena process and they get they could certainly get it. But because the I believe it was the GSA already had these emails archived, they just basically kind of did an end run and picked them up. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it wasn't illegal because it was the government asking for something the government already had, but it also wasn't the usual way people go about it. And this is all internal, you know, on the U.S. sovereign soil, everything is there, but you've still got this, this, this difference, I guess, between back in the day when they were, if it, so let's, let me put it in this context. This is why I found it fascinating and this kind of goes back, maybe this is a good example of what I mean about the difference between physical and digital. What if these had been letters that were written out on paper, handwritten on paper, or typed and mailed between the people mm-hmm. in the transition team? Could they have just walked over and picked up the mail? And I believe the answer to that is no, although I'm not a lawyer. Um, and maybe it is, maybe it's true. Maybe if they were sitting in some government archive, it would be okay for another government agency to walk in and pick up the box. I I don't know the answer to that question, but when you start thinking about the difference between the physical and the digital, uh, I think that's where it's just what you said. The lines are kind of murky. And part of the reason is it's just so darn easy to, to just go have somebody, you know, zip those up and send them over. (laughs) Right. And, and that's, that, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the approach. I don't want to speak, put words in Microsoft's mouth, yeah, but yeah. I think Microsoft's approach is, you know, we have this laws that are based on paper, <laughs> right. you know, for centuries. And are they perfect? No, but they've pretty much been sorted out. Yeah. So let's just treat virtual things like paper. You know, I, I think that's kind of the that. gist. Yeah. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think so too. I, I think it's not the medium. It's the, it's the content, if you will. That's protected. Right. And or the context that. Yeah. And, and it, you know, so I understand, like I said, I understand the government's case. I, I get it. And let's just assume, you know, best intentions that they were just trying to, you know, stop some bad guy from doing some bad things because um, that's probably accurate. But right. And I would I would add to that. Um, we all know what the, the road to hell is paved with. <laughs> I was going there. <laughs> um, and I would say in, in a case of bad people doing bad things, one of the things I think has happened, and again, I'm not a lawyer, is that for intelligence gathering purposes, the rules are a little different. True, true. And I would imagine if there were some serious shenanigans going on with this, uh, this copy of this file is probably in a data center somewhere in Utah. <laughs> Whatever do but you But it wouldn't need, be admissible in court. <laughs> Can't imagine. Um, but, I mean, I think that's really the, the key here is it wouldn't be admissible in court. Right. Um, and there's I, there, there's all sorts of landmines you're stepping in there when you talk about that. You know, is that right too? Well, no, but... But here's here's the real, I would say funny in an ironic sense, not funny, haha. Mm-hmm. Because of all this 
wrangling legally. A lot of uh, Amazon is basically on uh, Microsoft's side on this, right? Because here's the problem. If I'm a, a German company or an Irish company, I'm going to be think twice before I put my data on a data center or a server in a data center that's owned and operated by a U.S. company. Yeah. Because suddenly I am now beholden to U.S. law enforcement. Well, and there's the whole... The, you know, the whole thing that goes into effect, we're recording this on the 28th of December, 2017. In three days, GDPR kicks in. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about that, too. And that plays into um, this, right? Because now, uh, you know, now you have to play, if you sell products or services in Europe, you have to abide by those rules. And those rules are amazingly strict. And the fines are are high for small businesses. Um, and it just takes one person raising a flag to cost you 20 million euros or, or 4% of your gross, whichever is greater. That That's going to hurt. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, some friends are, are doing, you know, some friends who sell services and products and me, I sell services and products, and some of my clients are are in the European Union, and I've I've done what a lot of my friends have done. I I don't have an extra twenty million euros laying around to uh, you know to pay the fine, so I've just invested in a couple of. I use WordPress to run my websites that sell these services and products. I've invested in a plugin that allows me to check a box. And say if you're if you're buying this and you're in the European Union, you you can't buy this right now. I wonder how many companies and um, are going to opt for that because I think again the intentions behind GDPR is that what it is? Yeah, GDPR. Yeah. I keep want to say GDR, German Democratic Republic, <laughs> which was the well, you lived there of, for a while. Yeah, and, and yeah, and unified Germany, yes, but yeah, yes, not in East Germany, yes. Um, but uh, the intentions are are great. I, I mean, agree I, that they're taking data privacy um, to that degree of seriousness is is an awesome idea. But again, the 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 speaking of heavy handed, um, so see, we're not just bashing on the Department of Justice. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is just heavy handed. I mean, you know, if you're a small company and the minimum is 20 million euros, I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah, I can't, I just can't risk that. And um, I first learned about this reading Brent Ozar's blog, uh, brentozar.com. He's got a post on it, um, you know, why we stopped uh, selling in the European Union. And he laid out a really good argument for it. And I know Brent, I work with him and I talked with him about this. Um, and we, you know, probably should should get him on the show at some time. He's a smart data guy. Um, and, and his thinking is, you know what? It's going to be a really bumpy year, 2018 is, while they work out the details of this. But they'll figure it out. There'll be tools that'll be invented that will support making a request to basically delete all of your personal data, exposing that to the individual user. You, you think about what a My Account page looks like now, typically, um, there's, you know, there's a lot of that. The, a, a customer has a lot more control these days 
over their individual data than before. And that's really what they're after. They want to be able to go in, check a box, push the button, confirm that they want to delete all of their personal data and have it all removed from the database. Now, the kicker to this, and Brent points this out as one example, is there are systems out there that do not truly delete the data. They do what's called a soft delete. So they'll mark the data that's stored in the database still as deleted. They'll just set a bid on that row. And part of the metadata says this data is no longer available. However, that doesn't meet the requirements of GDPR. And there are database right. engines out there that work that way. Well, and what if you have a tape backup somewhere? Technically, that is Another, in violation. Exactly. So there's a lot to be worked out here. And Brent's theory is that it's probably going to take them about a year to get the kinks out of it. And that's, I think that's a fair estimate. They'll uh, they'll figure that out, but you're absolutely right. How do you deal with that with the backups? You, you know, that's a uh, a good case, I guess, for employing more DBAs. <laughs> right. Restore all the or backups. just clear DB or just using clear DB because <laughs> they'll delete everything, including the backup. <laughs> I think I have the new business model. <laughs> so, if you're curious as to what the heck I'm talking about, we have a, a whole episode devoted to this, but basically. The ClearDB is a um, database as a service provider that, uh, due to uh, uh, it's, I can laugh at it now. Thankfully, uh, bureaucratic snafu. They deleted all my data and all the, all my backups and a few other people too. Yep, that was uh, well, we we've hashed through that. It was a bad decision, bad business decision. Uh, not a yeah. not so much a technical one, but a bad business decision. But it's true when you start thinking about. What what does that look like? Because good database backups should be restorable, and they will contain all of that data that the user just pushed the button on. Um, you know, maybe maybe twenty four hours ago, you may have a month's worth of backups somewhere that have all of that user's data. So these are good, legitimate questions. I think they'll get worked out over time. I don't know if the law, as it stands, specifically addresses backups. I don't know that much about it, but. Um, I, I do. I'm smart enough to realize I don't have 20 million euros, so and I don't have a good mechanism for removing this data. You know, some of this data, Frank. Think about it. Some of, you're talking about not just backups, but just think about data living in the cloud. Um, there's, you know, I don't even have access to the backups that exist for some of that data because it's all done for me. Right. I mean, how would you? You know, if you put something in OneDrive or Google Drive and you delete it, I don't know. Did did you was it deleted at the Google side or the Microsoft side? Fair question. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. And my question is, you know, who who are the EU regulators going to you know come with the lead pipe? Exactly. Who who writes the twenty million euro check? Right, and it's just like you know. I think there's going to be. I think you're right. I mean, this is going to take some time. It, 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 this is a, a case for maybe – this is probably a case where legislation that gets too aggressive is, and it's too reactionary is a bad case. But I think this is going to – yeah, I think this is going to uh, work itself out in one year, possibly two. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think Brent's, you know, Brent's pretty wise on it. He's like you – know, he did an analysis of his business and found that you know, a single-digit percentage of his business was coming from the European Union. He did the math, uh, the risk – outweighed the reward or the potential reward and he's just flipping that same bet you know just yeah. we're just not going to sell to you if you're from there we're really sorry 
but you know, and it's not, nobody's upset. I'm not upset. I don't think Brent's upset. We, we wish it was different, but mainly before there's people there that will, you know, miss out on opportunities to, to learn and sign up for classes and um, you know, right. products and services for a year. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, it's probably going to, you know, they're probably either going to change the law some or there's going to be clarifications. But in the meantime, yeah, I, would, I would hold that thought, though. If you're listening to this and you're in the European Union, <laughs> get angry. <laughs> well, no, seriously, write your rep- I don't know what they're called, but representatives. But I mean, get mad because you know, I mean, choices are being made for you. Uh, you know, I mean, those are the people that the European Parliament's going to listen to. I, you would hope. And, you know, at the same time, you know, there's a reason that this law came into being. And I understand the reasons. I'm sure you do, Frank. Oh, and yeah. I, I, we said this, we think the, the, um, you know, the, there's, there are very noble uh, ambitions underlying this. Nobody sought to punish people or anything like that. And I, maybe this should have been done all along. Um, I could make that argument for data privacy, um, but it, it is what it is today. We're not quite ready for it. And, you know, if you're thinking about, okay, how do we get from where we are today to a system like that, where the data privacy is placed back in the hands of the individual, a 20 million euro fine is a pretty powerful motivator for that. Yeah, or 4% of your business, whichever is greater. Yeah. I think that, that gets people's attention. I, I agree. I mean, I think the the, the, the intent, their, their heart is in the right place. Mm-hmm. But they position their heart in such a way that their head's in the in the oven. <laughs> Or the guillotine, to go to a, a French example. Um, you know, and before anyone in France gets mad, if you, you know, the last name Levine, Levine uh, comes from France, ultimately, though by way of Quebec. But um, no, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things where r- one of the things I learned on my time on K Street was writing public policy and legislation is hard because you have to take into account a lot of factors, yeah. right? Yep. And one of them is unintended consequences. You know, yeah. I'm sure Brent didn't wake up one day. I don't want to speak for Brent, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> he probably didn't wake up one day and he's like, you know what? No more European Union. No soup for you. You know? Um, I don't think he did that. But, I mean, if you just look at that, that money, it's like, you know, I... I I get it, yeah. you know, and if you're in the European Union, the only, you know, if they're going to listen to anyone, they're going to listen to people with, you know, who ultimately put them in office. Um, and folks in the European Union have to get angry and write their representatives and say, hey, you know, um, fix this. Right. I agree. Um, That's good advice. I mean, because, uh, I mean, hoping it'll change in a year is, <laughs> it means it's going to take two years. Yeah. Hoping it changes in two years means it's going to take three. And so on and so on. Yeah, and it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting, I think 2018 is going to right. be a really interesting year for, for that. And once, you know, once people start trying to buy stuff and realize that they can't or access services right. and realize, well, it's not available uh, anymore because of this law, um, I think that'll foster some change. But it's going to take that, and it's probably going to take some test cases and, you know, I just I worry about the mom and pop shops, you know, the equivalent of the mom and pop shops on the on the Internet. And, uh, right. you know, and it's it's just it's going to be a very disappointing 
uh, thing for those people to try and log into their accounts in three days and they not be active. Right. And, um, that's, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting how that plays out. Yep. Yep. We'll, uh, we'll keep our eyes and ears tuned to it and we will be sure to let you know because it is a data related thing and we are data people. That's right. We're data driven. <laughs> we are. So, so getting back to, um, getting back to the sovereign cloud business, mm-hmm. one of the things that these companies are doing because building a data center is 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 a pretty big investment. Sure. If I want to build a data center, I mean, it's I've heard billions of dollars. I don't know if that's true, that, but it's in that neighborhood. That makes sense. Um, so what they've done is they've done they started off with China, um, but they've done it now in Germany. So this is what they call a sovereign cloud of Germany. Hmm. So remember, um, what they're doing is they're they're hedging their bets in case they lose the court case. That makes sense. So what they're saying now is that, well, okay, if the Department of Justice argument is that it's because the data center is owned and operated by a U.S. company. So, again, law of unintended consequences. What they've basically done is a German company, I think it's uh, T-Mobile or Deutsche Telekom, uh, is owns the data center. Oh. And they operate the data center. Microsoft leases it from them. I see. I saw that coming. Yeah, the leasing. Um, and I think they did it in Germany first. Um, and then you can easily imagine that they're going to, you know, if the court cases don't go that way. So, I mean, the, the funny thing is, and this is funny in a sad, ironic way, yeah. is that after all this time spent in court, they're actually going to make it harder for themselves to get the data. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. It seems like there's got to be a better way. And the example you gave of France, um, right. you know, that's, that's a, that's a good example. And again, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it's an overreaction. I think it's a heavy handed approach and that usually doesn't work. No. And, and it's the, this, it, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to kind of reverse engineer a way around that, you know, the way that the law is written. Yeah. And um, it's just, it's, it, at the end of the day, it's all going to be a whole bunch of time wasted and it's not going to apply anyway because the ownership has changed. Wow. Wow. But. <laughs> so on the bright side, well, I don't know. <laughs> on the bright side, I had a, I had my aha moment about, um, Hadoop. You were telling me about this earlier. We had a call earlier. Frank and I talk as much as we can, by the way. And you were, um, you you called me on on uh, Facebook Messenger, and I love that because we can video. If you're in the car, I can watch. Uh, you can show me where you're driving, and right. and we can talk. But you mentioned this. You 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 went through. Um, of course, you went through the data science certification. You went through some other certifications at edX. Right. You watched videos on Linda, and you found this course, and you watched that, and everything just kind of clicked. Yeah, because like one of the things about Hadoop is that, and I love the edX courses. So first off, if you're doing the data science certification through edX, the data scientist certification, there's really not any Hadoop content. 
it was only the courses I took to become the, the certified data engineer that had the Hadoop stuff. Right. So the analyst, big data analyst stuff. Big data analyst. Yeah, that's it. Yep. Which I found kind of interesting because Hadoop is kind of central to a lot of big data projects, which is then essential to feeding some machine learning algorithms. Right. Which is data science. Which is data science. Yeah. So for me, that, that that was always kind of like a big blind spot in the program. And I, and I get it. I I don't know where you would fit it yeah. in the way they have the, the the syllabus now, but they should at least mention it. But I, I never felt like I, I grokked Hadoop. Right. Like I knew what it did. I knew how it worked. And in the process of coming up with my course for Wintelect Now, I was like, yeah, I know, I know how it works, but I don't know why the heck you would use it. Yeah. And then, you know, I've been reading a lot. And then I finally clicked this morning, actually. I was like, of course, maybe, you know, some sleep deprivation played into it, too. <laughs> but I had that moment of, you know, I understand the universe now. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, we talked about this earlier. And, right. you know, and you said to me what others have have said to me about, you know, like SSIS. I've written bunches of books and parts of books on SSIS and people will come up to me every now and then and they'll say, you know, I read these other books on SSIS and those losers didn't know what they were talking about. I read your book and bam, you're awesome. You're just great. You're the best writer ever. Now I know for a fact that there's an equal or maybe greater number of people out there going to those people formally classified as losers and saying, I read books by that loser, Andy Leonard, and I couldn't understand it. And then I read your book and bam, it made sense. And I wrote a blog post about this, and I think it's called something like The Last Book on SSIS You Read or something like that, The Last SSIS Book You Read. And what I said to you in the call, I'll repeat. I think what happens is you're looking, everybody's looking for a place to start, and you're at zero or near zero. You can spell Hadoop or SSIS, and you go and you start reading and listening to stuff, going listen to videos, taking courses, and you glean stuff. You don't get it all. You don't have any context, but that's where you're building the context, right? Right. And finally, maybe two or three books or two or three YouTube videos or, or classes or online courses, you get into it a little bit and all of a sudden, bam, you know it. And it's just human nature to think, well, that last course was the one. That's when lightning struck. But the truth is you build a, a, the basis of a foundation. Let's compare it to building a house, right? You poured the footer first, and then you build a foundation, and then you could build a house. And my, I contend that that you can do that in any order with any collection of authors about SSIS or any courses about Hadoop. Now, granted, I think there's a lot more to it than that, and I'm oversimplifying it, but I think that's what it takes to build context. If you just throw words at people, and ideas at people who have no context to then surround it with, I don't think you're going to learn. No, absolutely. And I think even you mentioned lightning, you used the example of lightning striking. Yeah. Lightning striking is the last step in a process that takes about, what, 20, 30 minutes with the electrons <laughs> building up. That's true. I mean, uh, it takes a lot for the for you hit that threshold where the lightning will, the, the electricity will jump from point A to point B. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I think that's that's really key there. Plus, too, the other thing is that, uh, you know, my wife once made the observation, I, and I think she said it tongue-in-cheek, where 
You know, why is it when you're looking for something, it was always in the last place you look? <laughs> you always find it in that last place. I like that. Well, yeah, because too bad you didn't go there first, right? <laughs> um, but, um, and I also think people's learning styles are different. True. Um, you know, the course that I, I, I cut my teeth on Hadoop was the edX one, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty good. But it just showed you how to do stuff. It didn't really say why or what was going on on the covers. Right. Uh, the other good one that I did, but it, it still uh, was the Linda Fundamentals one by Lynn Langett, who was, she guessed number two or three. Yeah, uh, three, I think. Three. Um, very good course, but like, I don't know, there was just, there was just like one part where it was like missing for me. Um, and it was more so much, not so much Hadoop in general or HDFS. It was really what, what MapReduce is, why you would use it, what, what purpose does it serve? And why would, um, because I think a lot of existing Hadoop courses out there, mm-hmm. they don't want to talk about MapReduce. They want to talk about frameworks built on top of it, like Hive or Pick. Right, right. Uh, because realistically, if you're doing most real-world projects that have been done last couple of years and on, it probably use some framework on top of that rather than writing MapReduce kind of hands down in that. Oh, yeah. That, that's um, – but I think it's – once you understand the fundamentals of that and like like how that works, it's like, whoa. I totally agree. Um, I do, I'm taking the course now at edX. I'm actually, there's like three courses in the data analyst certification. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got two of them. I knocked out two of them at the end of the, I, th- I think in November and I waited until nice. December to sign up for the third. And as you know, they block you from signing up the last month yep. of the quarter. And I understand it, but you know what? I could have done that. <laughs> so, wish they did. That's a relatively new uh, change that they've made. And, uh, I, again, I understand it, but yeah. you know, certainly there's got to be a better way. Well, you're knocking four months of sales out of your uh, sales cycle there. I would think, right? <laughs> but anyway, I, I, you know, it's fresher in my mind, I think, than yours. I think you took it around a year ago, and uh, or six months ago, if I remember right. Six months ago, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember because it was just last month for me. I remember Graham talking about um, talking about why you would do some of this. He gave I thought some pretty fair examples of it. Now, but also I came into these courses, Frank, with two decades of data integration experience. Okay, <laughs> so right. so I was in a different place than you, and I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying. You know, if I if I was listening, no, to- no, exactly. I mean, you, this is your wheelhouse. Is. I mean, this is you know, yeah. Um, the the, the there's two observations uh, I want to add. Um, I took those courses because I didn't realize that the final data scientist certification was only offered four times a year, right? So they they knock out eight months of their sales cycle <laughs> on that one. So, um. But uh, that was where the phrase uh, "there's no breaks on the F train" came from, right. because I wanted to keep my mind like active and not like, you know, turn it off for two months and then get to well, it. Well, I'm I'm curious, Frank. How many of those certifications do you have now? It's like twenty. Uh, if you count something, up, I think it's nineteen. If you ha- nineteen. You yeah. Count up the individual courses. Yeah. So there were what ten, eleven in the data science. 
there are so what's interesting is there's 10 in data science yeah. to get the data science cert uh then i did the four to get that data analyst yeah. but they've added another professional certification program hmm. that's also 10 classes long Ooh. uh big data certified big data engineer interesting the cool thing is that four of those classes apply to um that uh, that's part of that analyst yeah certification yeah. Apply to the big data engineer. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So um, the uh, the uh, so you're you're once you finish that, you'll be well on your way to the to the next uh, the that you could be a certified data engineer. Well, I want to. Do, uh, yeah, well I definitely want to do that. I mean, that's I, you know you you've inspired me to uh, to do that. I've taken some of the data science certifications, but. Not as many. I haven't finished it, and I'm not even halfway finished. But I did change gears and start taking the data analyst stuff because I wanted to get my hands on, uh, really, on Spark. That's what I was after. Right. I kept hearing such. Well, as I was doing, I know you've done a lot of the SSIS stuff, and as I was doing the class on Spark, I'm like, Andy would eat this up. You told me that, and that's one of the reasons why I I did eventually. It took me six months. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I eventually got around to doing it and you were absolutely right. I just, you know, I had all of this, again, I had all of this context. I mean, I was doing data integration, Frank, before I knew what it was called. I was building applications in Visual Basic 3, I'm telling on myself, back in the 90s, that would essentially pump data and normalize it and, you know, and conform it. I was doing all of those things. I just didn't know what any of those words meant. I didn't know the terms for it, but I knew you had to do this in order to collect data from disparate sources. I, I built this thing, a manufacturing execution system. It was over 20 years ago. I called it plant-wide webs. And yeah, I know, cute. But we had, and we would collect data from all of these buses. So I, with, with Alan Bradley, um, I can't remember the name of the communication bus we were using, but there was all of these protocols, and I remember them running at 19.2 kilobaud. And, you know, we were polling, and every 10 seconds, this was before the days of dynamic HTML even, um, I would write every 10 seconds, I would write out a new .htm file um, on nice. the server. I would overwrite it. And if you were sitting anywhere on the network, you'd hit, you know, your refresh button, and it would refresh the, you know, with the latest values in your, in your browser. Was it super high tech? No, but every 10 seconds was about the best I could do to collect data from all over this plant. And literally thousands of, of what we call tags in human machine interface software, like RS view and Wonderware. There's a lot of uh, really cool software out there, but the idea was exactly what we're talking about nowadays with IOT, right? except it was just inside right. of this, you know, I don't know, four or five, six acre plant. <laughs> that was <laughs> manufacturing stuff. And we would pull data in from all of these devices on this little bus. And that's essentially, it was a little mini IOT. Um, and, and we were able to see stuff like that. So when, you know, when we start talking about these things in a sense of big data and pushing a network to its limit and being able to test it, and going through the data integration process and munging and data wrangling and stuff like that. I get it. You know, I did it back in the old days when it was a thousand times slower. Uh, Right. No, exactly. And it's uh, the cool kids call that. I think what you did now, 
not just IoT, but IIoT. Oh, really? Industrial IoT. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but um, but no, I mean it's it, you know, and the idea of machines communicating with machines is not a, you know, was not invented you know in two thousand thirteen. I mean it was uh, the moon lander uh, relied on a lot of components talking to one another. Sure. Um, so I mean it's just it's interesting how some of the stuff we do that we think is new is not all that agreed. new. Agreed. Agreed. But it's very interesting. It's just more widely distributed. And and what you said, though, was was absolutely right. And you and I have had this. We've gone back and forth. I, I talked to you years ago about business intelligence because I knew I could. it was obvious to me your artistic uh, abilities, your talent. And the presentation, I think, is the deliverable in any business intelligence pro- project. And so you already had that eye and that gift. And it would be very easy, I think, for you to pick up the rest of it. Now, now you agree with me, and it's okay. We're cool. I mean, that you didn't before. <laughs> I'm not bitter. I promise. You know, it, it's funny, and uh, I'm okay with this show running long because this is a special moment here. <laughs> um, but the the most developers, and I, keep in mind, software engineer from from day one almost, and um. Their experience with reporting, just that word, you know what comes into their mind? This horrible thing called crystal reports. Oh, gosh. Yes, I did some crystal reports work, yes. Which is kind of like, you know, there's plenty of like, you know, animated GIFs on here that would be nope, 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 nope. (laughs) As soon as you hear the word, well, what's BI? Well, it's writing reports. No, that's okay. Right. No, I get it. Um, which is probably, in which, you know, to my detriment, I mean, if I, if I had been in the data science, you know, like 10 years ago, as opposed to getting into, uh, you know, windows tablet PC and windows phone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Frank, I don't see that. Though. Um, I don't, I disagree with you because I think what you're going to see is uh, as data science goes mobile and it is, it's doing it now, true. um, that you're going to be uniquely positioned for that. I think it's one of those cases of all things working together for the good. Um, and at the same time, we've had the inverse experience where you, while you were going through the Spark courses, were thinking the same thing about me. Andy would get, eat this up, and you're right. Um, so yeah. I, I dove into it, and I'm looking forward to knocking out that last uh, last course or two so that I, too, can get that data analyst certificate. Um, and, and I'm awesome. looking forward to taking some more. The data engineer thing just sounds awesome. And also, I saw an ad for uh, Databricks. So um, Azure has Databricks in private preview right now. Um, I actually signed up for it. I hadn't had a chance to tinker with it yet, but it's out there and I've got access. It's going to go public probably around the time the show comes out. Um, Oh, very cool. There will be an Azure Databricks preview. And if you think about what's going on, and this was another part of our conversation earlier, you know, we were talking about how when you get right down to the bottom of Hadoop, we're talking key value, right, which is a tuple. Right. And right. that's almost equivalent to the machine language of data and in any yes. database. And when you think about what does a relational database do? Well, it's an abstraction on that model. So it's it's very much like a second order language or maybe even a third order language on top of that. And that's like the the machine code of data. And now when you start putting this in the context of things like Hadoop, that, that talks in, in tuples, if you will. And then on top of that, we've got things like Hive and Pig, 
And then on top of that, we've got things like Spark that's automating things and creating pipelines and, you know, and doing all of this stuff. And then on top of that, now you've got, um, you know, Databricks. And, and it's in my, you know, in my imagination, Frank, it's very tectonic. And, and I don't want to overplay that, but it's like layers on top of layers on top of layers. And we're in a time where new stuff is being invented. They're, they're creating even new layers. It's not just new tech. It's a whole new type of tech, you know? No, absolutely. I think we, we, we live in a very interesting time yeah. and you just spat off a bunch of terms that some folks listening may not know what they are. So one thing that I think we, Andy and I talked about it uh, is we're going to have very much in the style of .NET Rocks, they have geek outs <laughs> where they pick one topic and they kind of go deep on it. Yep. Now, now they go deep on things um, like moon bases and jet fuel, but that that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I think what we're going to do uh, in 2018 is have shows that, you know, today we're going to talk about Hadoop. Yeah. And, you know, we'll kind of have like a back and forth on Hadoop. And then we'll do a back and forth on Spark. Yep. And then we'll kind of talk about, well, how is that different than Hadoop? I I think that would be fantastic where we can go from, you know, the shallow to uh, up to people's necks. Right, right. And a lot of this stuff, I mean, if you're, if you're already a data engineer uh, or DBA or in that data world, or you're a software engineer, you, you already have a lot of the mental processes to do this. Yeah. It's just a question of, when you hear data scientists talk, it, it automatically sounds like Charlie Brown's parents sometimes, <laughs> you know, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and I mean, it's true. And it's just like, I, I, I have to be conscious of that too. When I'm explaining stuff in, in, when, when I'm doing uh, training or, or videos where I, I realize that if I'm talking to developers, I, they have no idea what I'm talking right, about. Right. Right. Um, you know, which one, I mean, that, that's awesome because I, I I can now listen to those data science videos and understand what they're saying. Right. Which wasn't that long ago. That wasn't the case. <laughs> um, but um, because a lot of this goes deep into this. In fact, I actually got a message from a guy I used to work with many, many moons ago. And he said, you know, he, he basically had that problem where he would watch stuff and it would like make no sense. Yeah. You know, cause he'd be talking about, you know, stochiastic gradient descent or you know stuff like that and it's it's not it's not necessarily extremely difficult to grasp the concept but if you hear the official names it sounds very scary well it's its own language right so there's semantics yeah, and this is this is why i find technical conferences um very much like a i don't know the technical equivalent of a vacation i don't know what the right word would be but if I'm talking to normal people, and I don't mean that we're abnormal, but we do have our own vocabulary. And when I, right. when I go to a conference, I can use acronyms and I don't have to stop and explain right. what that means. And it's, it, I'm not, I promise I'm not, um, I'm not throwing off all my family or uh, people at church or, you know, folks I run into in the store. But when they ask me what I do, I just, I either say computer stuff or, <laughs> I just kind of leave it at that. But you know, if I'm at the past summit or a sequel Saturday or something like that, I can, I can talk about the niche, you know, I can go deep. Right. 
And there's a lot of analogies we can use. And I love this idea when you put, first posed this idea of d drilling down deep on a topic, um, which was a month or so ago. I was like, yes, because we can do things like like we can talk about analogies. Like I just talked about, you know, how data is like almost machine code. Tuples are like the machine code of data. Right. Well, you can. It's a brilliant observation. I had never really well, thought about you that. can compare that to um, maybe maybe to like the .NET framework, which is. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, is written mostly in C++, and it interacts with things like the printer drivers and stuff like that and all the hardware in the machine. So you now can abstract that. You can just say this class.print, right, and it'll it'll send it to the printer. And you don't have to write all Or, or Java for those folks on the other side of the fence. <laughs> um, no, because one of, the, one of the challenges of C or C++ is that you have to manage memory. Exactly, yeah. Now, when you, when you were dealing relatively simple tasks. And I don't mean that, that sounds really arrogant, but I mean, things like flying to the moon. No. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you only had 16 K of memory, right. it wasn't unreasonable to, you know, you know, to have the require that level of control. Absolutely. But when you're dealing with um, larger, more complex systems, you just no human being would be able to be, productive and manage memory of you know, gigabytes right, worth. Right. It's just not practical. Well, so they abstracted that away. And and that's right. what I'm talking about when I, you know, when I talk about, you know, as we move up from the tuple level, as we go up, as we see these new tectonic layers, as we see things being built on top of the older things. So we have Hadoop sitting here and then we have Pig and Hive sitting on top of that, which abstract away some of the Hadoop. There's still Hadoop happening under the hood. But it's being right. managed differently, and there's, you know, maybe it's staying in RAM instead of writing to a file that you have to then pick up again in the next step. And it builds on top of that. Then there's these pipelines that, you know, you can build four or five steps and string them together. And now you can call them with a single command. And then there's this, you know, another thing built on top of that where you can call several pipelines and string those together. That's that's what we're talking about here. And it's just a neat time to be in it because we understand from so many other parts of technology, the next steps, we kind of know where this is going. Uh, it's just, it's just a matter of figuring out, okay, how are we going to do it? What's it going to be called? What's the, the syntax going to be? What are the commands going to look like? How's it going to work? And we kind of know the answers to these questions, but you still have to build it. You have to hang it on the wall and throw the switch, and uh, that's happening. And it's just so cool to see it happening. Yeah, and it's 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 now more accessible than ever to, to more people, which I think is very exciting as well. I completely agree with that, Frank. So, if you're curious about this, just stay tuned. These shows will be out in January. I'm so looking forward to it, Frank. Yeah, me too. Coolness. So I'd like to also thank everyone who has helped make the show a success. We're well over 30,000 downloads now. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, in just over six months. Wow. Wow. I know. <laughs> it's cool. I've had a blast. I, I don't want to speak for you, but I assume you did too. Same here. Yes. No, this has been fantastic. And we started talking about this a little over a year ago and, yep. um, and playing around with different ideas and kind of, I don't know, munging, 
Munging. Yes. Munging ideas and bouncing stuff off the wall. And we recorded our first show back in February. Um, yep. And I think it went live in May because we wanted to get a few shows in the pipe. Uh, recorded. We have fantastic uh, list of guests so far. Um, just a just a great group. Uh, check us out at datadriven.tv and uh, sign up to be a data driver. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll get some emails out to you. I've been slacking on the emails lately. I apologize if you're a data driver, but if more of you would sign up, I'd, I'd take it more seriously. I'm kidding. Well, plus the <laughs> annoying thing of billable work getting in the way, right? <laughs> then, well, there's that. Yes, keeping the lights on and the roof over the head and food in the fridge, yes. <laughs> yeah, pesky life. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we'll become independently wealthy, Frank, and then we can just do shows all day long every day. That'd be awesome. That would be awesome. Oh, sign me up for that. <laughs> well, this has been a fantastic ride this year. Um, you did an awful lot of the work. Um, when we were going from concept to recording, Frank invested a lot of time in, um, in, in training, actually. You took some classes on how to do a successful mm -hmm. podcast. You learned all about the business. You learned what works, what doesn't work. You did that work. And I think that's the number one reason why we're, I think we're at about 35, sorry, 31.5K downloads uh, this morning. And um, nice. thank you for all of that hard work for the investment of the time. And there was some money as well invested. Thank you so much for that, Frank. Hey, no problem. I think one of the things that um, coming out of 2016 and kind of the disaster that it had been for me personally and professionally um, I knew the best thing to do going forward would be investing in myself. Yeah. And the best way to do that is with training certifications, obviously. I mean, I think what 17 of those, all but two of those 19 or 20. Yeah. I got into yeah. 2017. Wow. So in 2018, um, if you're looking for a resolution, if you do resolutions, I do goals. Uh, yep. And if you're looking for good goals, there's a goal. Pick up a couple of certs. Go to Edex. There's, you know, there's courses there that you can, you have to pay Edex to get the official certificate, but you can get the knowledge for free. And, you know, you complete the course. Uh, you can do that. Even the courses that cost, in my opinion, they're not overly expensive. Um, but they, they may be, they're not, they're not free. So, Check out those courses. There's, um, um, what's the one, Linda, that uh, Lynn does, that's now part of LinkedIn. There's- Which is now part of Microsoft. Which is now part of Microsoft. <laughs> and there's Udemy, which has actually really economical courses. Um, Pluralsight, right. you know, has courses out there. There's a lot of places you can go and learn for um, a fixed monthly fee. Or At Wayne Select Now, of course. Wayne Select Now, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> Well, how can I forget what I like now? And you, and I'm gonna get heat for that. Like you mentioned, your guy mentioned plural site before. I'm sorry, I've seen a whole bunch kidding. of them. So I, I go to a lot of them. Oh. You sent me a link uh, earlier on Messenger to the uh, one you did on Udemy, which you know those individual right. courses. They're kind of like a la carte courses, and some of them are five or ten or fifteen bucks. I mean, well, that's the thing with Udemy is that. Um, uh, their pricing strategy is a little bit wonky. Mm -hmm. They'll say it's 95% off because normally it's like a $3,000 course, but <laughs> you know, today it's $15 or something like wow. that. 
Um, I, I, I bought a lot of stuff on Udemy. Um, are the courses worth $300? Some of them are. Mm. Uh, are some of them worth $15? Yeah, I, I've never regretted a dollar I spent on Udemy. Interesting. Um, uh, my only regret is that I, there's only so many hours in a day. <laughs> <laughs> but um you know i mean udemy uh, is great because you know everybody's got 10 15 dollars yeah. i mean um and if you don't then um you know there, there's always khan academy you know you have to start somewhere absolutely yeah and i have a cool sign hanging out in my office uh it's um let me go back so i get the quote right i'll edit this part out <laughs> And I hung it up in my office for a very important reason. And basically it says your future is created by what you do today, not by what you do tomorrow. Interesting. So that way that I see it the first thing when I walk in my office and it's the last thing I see when I leave my office. Nice. Um, because uh, maybe another thing I'll do in 2018 is, you know, kind of explain how I was able to do those, you know, 20 certifications in a year. Yeah. Is, you know, I, I've done a lot of data science around, learning basically sure and um that would be an interesting experiment to kind of try it out on some folks i don't know you know i think that would be a if not a topic for a show a good topic for another show like we do like this where we maybe spend 20 minutes diving into that uh learning how to learn that's a good idea um i think we both have some good stories to tell on how to do that. I'm still learning. I'm turning 55 in 2018 and I don't plan to slow down. I'm going to keep, uh, I'm going to keep learning and, and keep growing. You mentioned uh, Wendelec now, so I'm not going to feel bad about mentioning Bemmel.academy. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you want to learn Bemmel business intelligence, markup language. Um, and, and, you know, Frank, I had a, I had a good, I realized this uh, yesterday, my last um, books, the physical books arrived I wrote, uh, actually, I published three books in 2017, and that was a big year for me. I've never done that before. I've done two in a year, but never three. And so that last book came in, and it's still a thrill. It was book number 12. I opened the box, nice. and there they were. Um, and it just, it's very exciting. This one's on data integration, lifecycle management. And, you know, now that I've got my my toe in the water on training, um, I kind of know how to set up a educational site uh, with Bemmel Academy. Uh, look for more of that. I've got two more ideas and I'll just leave that. At cool. And a few domain names registered too. No, no, really? Are you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, stay tuned kids. Cause 2018 is going to be interesting for me personally. 2017 was about, um, I'll use a boxing analogy. Cause my dad, uh, actually, my as we're recording this, the, my dad passed away to 11 years ago today, um, and um, my dad was an awesome person. But one of the, one of his favorite sports was boxing. Mm. You know, I mean, I mean, I got a pretty good KO in 2016 with getting laid off. Mm, yeah, um, my mom getting sick and all the sorts of drama associated with that. Uh, you know, 2017, I said, you know what, this is my workout year. You know, I'm gonna, um, you know, come back stronger than ever. And um, um, Man, it was pray. a rebuilding year. 2018 is going to be the the uh, butt kicking year. There you go. I I am in awe. Um, there are no brakes on the F train, and uh, not. I just 
super inspired. I saw you take off in, I guess it was May of 2016 is where you really started picking up and running with it. And interestingly enough, I believe it was around the time you got that very adverse news and you just poured it on. And now, you know, here we are uh, over 30,000 downloads later talking about data science, Frank, certified data scientists, 1920 certifications on the book. And now you're creating courses. Presented at several conferences already on data science. I mean, yeah. Now you're creating content that others are learning it from. I right. just hats off to you, dude. I, I think that that's, I see that's part of my mission, so to speak, my mission from God, uh, referring <laughs> to my blues brothers is that, you know, I see a lot of people that are kind of afraid of this. They shouldn't be afraid of this. This is yeah. awesome. It's exciting. It's a, we live in one of those transformational times that, you know, we've been fortunate. If you've been in the industry, you know, since I've been in the industry, I mean, I saw the rise of the web. I saw the rise of mobile. And mm-hmm. this is just, a, this is another like transformational moment where 10 years from now, it'll be something else, but we'll never, we'll, we'll wonder how we got by without AI and machine learning. Right. Right. Completely agree. And, and I, uh, I predate you uh, at least one generation. I saw the rise of PCs. Oh yeah. <laughs> So, so starting in 1975. Uh, <laughs> right. Was that the year Microsoft was founded? I think it was after that. I want to say it was 77, 78. Might have been. I don't know. Maybe it was. Definitely 70. the 70s if you see the founder picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I dressed like that. I did. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's been well, a great cool. ride. 2017 has been fantastic for Data Driven. It's been fantastic yep. for... Uh, I think for you and me, uh, we've been friends for 12 years now and um, wanted to work together forever. I'm so glad we started talking about this like 13, 14 months ago. It was your idea. Uh, All the credit goes to you for that. You've done most of the work, the lion's share of the work in this. So uh, hats off to you, Frank, for for all of that. I appreciate you letting me ride along with you. No, dude, I I can't picture a better co-pilot. <laughs> awesome stuff. So with that, we'll let the nice British lady take us out. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. Don't just listen, become a data driver by going to datadriven.tv to sign up to join the community, access to special events, tips and tricks, and more. Sign up today at datadriven.tv.